The Mind Aware 207. Ready, fire, aim. I can do anything I want with my life and no one can stop me. Once you shift these habits and you do it long enough, it becomes so easy and natural. I am on a ball in outer space. I bet you try salad tomorrow for breakfast after hearing this. Get a tattoo on your forehead that says shift your focus. It'll make it so easy. Music comes from the space between the notes. Bam. That's it. No truer words have been spoken. I love it. What kind of business do you want? Do you want a brick and mortar or do you want a click and order? I want people to practice good legal hygiene. I'm a foodie too. Hello everyone. This is Dana Wild and welcome. Today we have Dr. Norm Sheely with us. Accomplished neurosurgeon and author Dr. Norm Sheely is one of the world's leading experts in pain management. Dr. Sheely was among the first physicians ever to specialize in the resolution of chronic pain and is a pioneer in developing safe and effective treatments such as biogenics. In 1971, he founded the Sheely Institute, a center for treatment and research of chronic pain. This medical center is world-renowned for four-sided therapies and treatments. Dr. Sheely holds 11 patents for innovative discoveries, including the TENS, that's T-E-N-S, pain control unit, and he's published more than 300 articles and authored 25, 25 best-selling books. So please, everybody, help me welcome to the call, Dr. Norm Sheely. Yay, the crowd goes wild. <laughs> hey, it is a great day. Every day is a great day if you believe it. Isn't that the truth? Well, so good to have you here. I'm just uh, so excited to have you here, Dr. Sheely, and I've got so many questions for you, and so I just can't wait to jump in. I thought maybe, I know there's probably, we'd be hard-pressed to find anybody in our listening audience who hasn't heard of you, but I thought maybe it might be kind of fun to start out by having you kind of go back and tell us what got you interested in pain management and kind of how you started exploring on this subject. Well, I, I trained at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which at that time was a nationally known center for pain. Basically, they cut your spinal cord a quarter across at least, and they destroyed your frontal lobes to treat chronic pain. And I thought it, I didn't know whether the physicians or the patients were crazier mm-hmm. for allowing that because it doesn't work. I mean, it, it causes you know side effects like paralysis and a few other things like that that nobody would consciously undertake. So I set out when I finished my residency in neurosurgery, I was on the faculty at Western Reserve to find out what what can we do that's safe to manage pain. And so I came up first with transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation and dorsal column stimulation, which was an implanted pacemaker into the core, uh, over the cord. Mm-hmm. And although it works, the uh, company that was making the equipment decided to change the design of the electrode and it caused some complications, and I quit doing that one. And then I began looking at, well, what else can we do? And I learned about biofeedback, autogenic training, and spiritual healing. And I was doing acupuncture by that time, and, and it just exploded, in a sense, into a whirlwind of things that eventually 
led me to start the American Holistic Medical Association and working with the talented medical intuitives. That's a briefing. So let me get this right. When you started into this, people, the neurosurgeons were actually cutting people's spinal cords to manage pain. <laughs> Is that, if I got that right? You got it right. Back in the 1920s, a neurosurgeon in Philadelphia discovered a woman who had a tuberculoma. We used to have these sort of tuberculous tumors that would occur, and it was in her spinal cord. And she had lost the feeling of pain on the opposite side of the uh, body. And so they started cutting the front half, usually on one side, but occasionally both sides, of the spinal cord. And that only leads to about 10% of people being paralyzed and 10% getting worse pain than they ever had and 10% not having control over the bowels, uh, bladder, or and 100% not having any sex function. Wow. I mean, to me, those odds were not good. No, not at all. Unbelievable. And and so we're talking like mid sixties, late sixties here. Is that about right? Yeah, it was it was still being done well into the mid sixties. Um a neurosurgeon at University of Chicago started doing it with a radioactive strontium needle. But that of course has complications too. Up to eighteen months later you can become paralyzed because the radiation continues damaging for a long time. Wow. And I gave a talk uh, on this at a National Association of Neurosurgeons, and one of the leading proponents of the court order walked out of the room and said, I don't think I can handle it. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't sound so barbaric. It's unbelievable. So let me ask you something, because obviously you've been on the forefront of this for so many years, and I'm wondering when you compare that time, like if you can mentally bring yourself back to that time and compare what the world was like then to where we are now. I mean, do you have any comments on that or any commentaries? Did you know at that time what we were headed for? Did you see that there was a nucleus for that? Well, as a matter of fact, even back at the initial introduction of nuclear energy, and I I was um, sort of in my early teens, I thought this has got to be the craziest thing the world has ever done. How can we try to forget about the bomb? That's bad enough. But why are we so stupid as to try to get energy by atomic means and we have no way of destroying the waste product? Mm-hmm. I just this morning got an email of the aftermath of Chernobyl and what it still looks like today. And, of course, there's a rumor that the Japanese are going to move 40 million people because of of the one there last year. To me, I I consider it unbelievably stupid, ignorant, almost psychotic even to think about using nuclear energy. I've felt that way since the beginning. Mm -hmm, Right. And when you were starting to look into all of these alternative modalities of, of healing and managing pain, at that time, did you kind of, were you just considered, I don't know, radical or crazy or out there? Or <laughs> did you see that there were a lot of other people who were ready to kind of take this journey and this ride with you? Well, you know, interestingly, when I introduced my basic research, my animal electrophysiological research on pain management, and I actually was given the first Harold G. Wolf Award for the best research uh, on pain, but when I presented it to the neurosurgeons, it was all about animals, and they screamed and yelled, you don't know what you're talking about. 
They refused to publish it in the Journal of Neurosurgery. Three years later, when I went to the same meeting and gave my talk on six patients, every neurosurgeon in the room wanted to do it. So, oh, wow. you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Oh, that's great. That's Oh, that's a perfect, I love that phrase. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Perfect, perfect bumper sticker right there. Uh, and so, then, uh, let me give you one more. When I introduced oh, holistic medicine, one of my former neurosurgical colleagues on the faculty at Western Reserve wrote an editorial in the New England Journal criticizing the leaders of the holistic movement as speaking too well and being too charismatic. And then he said, we're too busy taking care of disease to try to prevent it. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. Having the hindsight now of all these years behind you, do you really feel optimistic with where we are now and where we're going? Does the world today seem like, okay, we're, we're finally starting to embrace this? No. Uh, unfortunately, in the meantime, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot yet, where did we as Americans, go wrong. And it's a long and convoluted story, but basically, beginning in the 30s and accelerating ever since then, people stopped taking personal responsibility for their own life and health. And so today, people are not as healthy as they were 30 years ago. Uh, we have twice as much obesity, two-thirds of all Americans are overweight. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, that's sloppy, sloppy, sloppy thinking. Mm -hmm. And 20% of adults still smoke. Actually, in over 50 years of a national war on tobacco, we've cut it only, only by half. Wow. The vast majority of Americans do not eat adequately. Of course, in 19, early 1960s is when so-called fast food, I call junk food, came in, I went to McDonald's in 1962. I took one bite, and I spit it out, threw the whole thing away, and I've never been back. But most people become addicted to that junk. And right. finally, only 10% of Americans get adequate physical exercise. So today, 3% of Americans have those most essential four habits, no smoking, Body mass index, 18 to 24, five or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day, vitamins of physical exercise, five days a week. Taking all four of these, only 3% of Americans have that. So, wow. you know, we are in a health disease crisis. So let's talk about that a little bit because your 3% have all four of these that you're talking about, and that is what you would term taking personal responsibility for your health. I really like that because... A lot of our health just stems from being able to do these preventative things, right? Take care of exactly. ourselves, eat the right food, don't smoke, do things that don't damage your body, exercise, all of those types of things. What about things like caffeine? I mean, people, a lot of people have a cup of coffee in the morning or a glass of wine at night, let's say, for alcohol. I mean, what about the idea of everything in moderation? Do you have any kind well, of... Well, uh, absolutely, of course. I, I mean, I think two cups of coffee a day is perfectly safe. I think two or three cups of tea is perfectly safe. I think a drink for most people is safe. I don't think three drinks is safe or more. Right. So, and, well, you know, uh, let's face it, French fries are not a, not a vegetable and not just ketchup. <laughs> uh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> 
so so let me come back and ask you about that a little bit more because I think a lot of us we hear this and we know we want to do it. We want to be doing all these things and we're incorporating more and more into our daily lives. You know, everybody is trying to exercise more, eat healthy, you know, big emphasis on, on whole foods and eat stuff without a label on it and all of this type of thing. But I'm wondering how much of this is just habit. People have a certain habit and a certain routine they get into and they just find it hard to change or find it hard to shift. And do you have any advice on that? Like how do we kind of unstick ourselves from these habits that we get into? Well, I've never been very um, retarded in my opinion. No, please, share. Basically, let's go back to what I consider the root cause. And the root cause is a failure to receive and feel blessed, nurtured, and wanted as a child. In today's world, 45% of children are born to unwed mothers. I can't believe that was a happy happy pregnancy. 25% of women are put to sleep to have a baby. They don't produce oxytocin. The woman who goes through a traumatic pregnancy does not produce oxytocin. We now know that every single, not some, every known psychological dysfunction that has a name on it, ranging from ADHD, autism, depression, anxiety, gambling, addiction, borderline personality, obsessive compulsive disability, and schizophrenia, all are associated with an inadequate oxytocin grounding. So the problem begins because not having felt nurtured at birth or having some major traumatic event uh, take place in the first seven years of life, like divorce of parents, shuts off an individual's ability to feel nurtured, good. Right. So about 80% of people wind up with poor self-esteem. That's the bottom line. And Did you say 85, 85%? 80%. 80%. That's a, wow, that's incredible. That's a really high estimate. Wow. And, and so can you explain a little bit more about this oxytocin grounding to me? This is, a, is some kind of a chemical reaction in the brain that happens when you're a child and you're receiving love. Is that how that works? Well, it happens throughout life if you get what I call oxytocin grounded at birth. I see. You see, during labor... The woman produces a huge amount of oxytocin. Of course, it goes through the umbilical cord into the child. That sort of opens the gate of that person's brain to know what oxytocin is and how to produce it. If you didn't get that at birth, the chances are good that you're not going to be grounded in it. Now, if you did get that, you can have a a wonderful, happy, life. And so many, many things then allow you to produce your own oxytocin. For instance, if you and I really enjoy even talking to one another, we'll get a little bit of it. If I put my hand on you and you like it, and I don't mean it in an inappropriate way, I mean just touch you on the shoulder or something, you'll produce some oxytocin. You get a massage from someone that you appreciate doing, you'll produce oxytocin. 
But in those people who didn't get that initial boost at birth, they just have a mechanism that isn't working well. Now, in the last decade, there have been experiments on every one of those emotional disorders that I mentioned showing that these people are deficient in, in oxytocin and given an intranasal spray of oxytocin, they improve quite significantly. But you have to do it three or four times a day. It's expensive. Nobody's done long-term uh, trials of this. And my concern at doing it long-term is not only the expense, which would be horrendous, but oxytocin does change blood flow. And I think it's going to destroy the nasal mucosa if you use it long term. Right. So last summer, I got interested in, you know, what can we do to help people redevelop their oxytocin system? Fifteen years ago, one of the things that I discovered was, that, and, and this is one of my patents, in fact, I discovered that when we stimulate electrically with human DNA frequency, 13 specific acupuncture points, which are called the ring of air, it releases a neurochemical that the brain produces called neurotensin. And neurotensin is a neuroleptic. A neuroleptic is a relaxed, detached, I'm okay chemical. You know, in fact, one patient said, this stuff's got street value. And another <laughs> one said, is this legal? And so... Uh, but then last summer, thinking about this, I, think, I bet it also releases oxytocin because there's another feeling that I get when I do it. So I found one article out of hundreds and hundreds on neurotensin that says when a neurotensin is released, it raises oxytocin. So then I went back and studied stimulation of the ring of air with human DNA frequency, 54 to 78 billion cycles per second at a billionth of a watt. And lo and behold, it raises oxytocin, and people just feel good within 30 minutes of doing it electrically. Well, then I came up with a, a specific mixture of essential oils, because I found over the last 15 years, most people won't spend 20 minutes to do anything. They just won't do it. So I came up with a mixture of essential oils, what I've called bliss, and when we put that on, which takes about 30 seconds, it produces oxytocin within less than 30 minutes. Wow. And basically, I've now tried it, at this point, primarily in depression and anxiety. And it looks as if about 90% of people are going to feel less depressed, far less anxious, very quickly after putting on list of these 13 points. I have three adults with Asperger's, which is, of course, an adult form of autism. And they are doing beautifully with bliss. Wow. I just want to see if I've got this right. So basically what you discovered is that with the ring of air, certain pressure points, injecting them with a human DNA frequency, I think you said, when you stimulate these points, you release the oxytocin. So therefore, a lot of people who were not grounded, oxytocin grounded at birth, this is the solution. And But you're saying... You've discovered how to do this in 30 seconds. Is that right? Exactly. You got I mean, it. Incredible. This is just incredible. And you actually have got the clinical studies to prove it, especially with something like Asperger's. That's just amazing. Good for you. Now, I haven't Very yet done this research, but I'm about to. 
I now, I believe, <laughs> and I have a dream, that we can take people who because primarily of this thing we've talked about already, they didn't get grounded at birth, because of that, we can take those people and begin to reactivate their oxytocin system and response. And doing that, we can then measure their conscientiousness, which, of course, is what really is what determines whether you've got those good health habits. And before we activate oxytocin, have them use it for a few weeks and remeasure their conscientiousness. And conscientiousness is one of the big five in personality uh, evaluations. And I believe that we will increase conscientiousness once people have experienced, let's say, a month of, of bliss. And that is really what determines health and longevity. The number one determinant of how healthy you are and how long you're going to live is conscientiousness. And how do you measure that? How do you test for that and know if people are conscientious or not? Well, there there are several tests for it. Um, it it's part of one called the Big Five, and and they're they're questioned. These are these are psychometric tests, and they've been extremely validated and widely widely used. And in there's even a a ten question one that is almost as good as the hundred plus question one. And so I'm already playing with that. And I've also developed a separate conscientiousness scale, which I'm working with, because of what I call at this point a conscientiousness profile, because, again, it is the number one determinant. There was a wonderful book that came out uh, early April last year called The Longevity Project. And three different sets of researchers, because the first two got off, followed 1,500 children from age 10 for over 80 years. And what they found is, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's good to talk about religion and it's good to talk about exercise and what you eat and all these things. But the number one determinant of the ones who lived the longest and the healthiest was conscientiousness. Wow, unbelievable. So can you give us a definition of conscientiousness or a way of like letting us know is this are you talking about specifically the ability to be aware of your habits and the desire to make change? You bet. That's part of it. Actually, it's someone who's organized, orderly, uh dedicated to doing it best, you know, driven in a sense to do their best. Right. And so their willpower allows them to follow through on treating the body as if it's a holy temple, because that's what it all boils down to ultimately. I agree with you. I think that's brilliant. It definitely would make a huge difference in how healthy we are, the number one motivator for if we're healthy or not. What could we do to raise our own conscientiousness? Is there anything we can do? Can we think differently? Does mindset play a part in it? I mean, are there habits we can take to try to just be well, more conscientious? I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about that a great deal the last uh, 10 months. Uh, and I think Roberto Asagio, the Italian psychiatrist, who created something called Psychosynthesis, wrote two big books, one Psychosynthesis and the other one, The Act of Will. And basically, 
it is a lack of will that is the problem. Uh, a wonderful professor of jurisprudence well over 20 years ago wrote a great article called The Modern Obscenity. And his concept of the modern obscenity is I can't help myself. Hmm. What Dr. Wilbanks pointed out is that the vast majority of people who quit smoking, who lose weight, who quit alcohol, who quit gambling, who, who take control of their lives, do it with willpower. Uh, you know, Roberto Asagioli said, if you want to start developing your will, stand on a chair on one foot. <laughs> That's an act of will. Begin to use your willpower because you are the one who can take control. Personal responsibility. We're kind of full cycle. Personal responsibility. And and it's interesting because you talk about it almost like it's a muscle we can flex and we can get better at using. And it's like if you've been spending your whole life saying you have no willpower or I think, as you just said, I can't help myself, well, of course that's what you're going to get. But if you start exercising it like it's a muscle, then you have a chance, right? I consider it a muscle of the mind. Right. Right, very good. So you do think mindset then actually plays a role in health as well? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Attitude. The first basic attitude, you know, way back in the in the early 70s when I developed this thing that I call biogenics, I started with the number one thing is I'm okay. Hmm. And that's so important. And to believe that you have the power to do something. And then the second one is to be in present time, not living all of your, you know, wandering mind in the past. I should have, I would have, I could have, and all that junk. And, you know, be here now, in other words, it's become known as. Then you can consciously learn to relax. You can accomplish about 50% of what you can do with your mind just by doing relaxation, deep relaxation, 20 minutes a day. And you can go a little bit further if you couple that with something called autogenic training. Because autogenic training is the single most studied tool in the world. By 1969, there were 2,600 scientific references. And 80% of people who do that can control... Stress illnesses, pressure, you know, back pain, all kinds of things, diabetes. And so I call this then gaining control over what you allow yourself to feel. And it's, you know, you can decide by getting in touch with the feedback from your individual, and the other thing I call it sensory biofeedback, getting in touch with the feelings, not the emotional feelings in your mind, but the physical feedback from your body that says, I don't feel good, or I'm tight, or I'm uncomfortable, you can learn to control that. And I developed a whole system of exercises for that. Then you've got to learn to control the emotions themselves, the anger, guilt, anxiety, uh, depression. Because even if you do good relaxation, if you start back playing the broken records immediately afterwards, you're out of balance again. So there are specific mental exercises that you can train yourself to do to get rid of and be done with and away from anger, guilt, anxiety, depression, which are the basic negative emotions. 
And when you do both of these, when you learn to control mentally the feelings in your body and change them and your emotional reactions and change them to be positive, then you're ready for true spiritual attunement. Dr. Sheely, this is such good stuff. I, I am just enjoying this so much, and I, I know everyone else is. Okay, love it. We'll be back in one sec. What's going on with you? You seem so up all the time, and your business is on fire. What are you doing? I started Train Your Brain You. It's the only program for entrepreneurs that addresses mindset and business growth strategies. The idea behind the program is that when you feel good, you act great, and it's awesome. You can check it out at trainyourbrainu.com, and that's trainyourbrainu, the letter U, dot com. Is it expensive? Seriously, it's like you're a whole different person. It's only a dollar a day, and you get all the latest tools to help you stay positive and grow your business. You would love it. Where do I go again? Trainyourbrainu.com. That's trainyourbrainu, the letter U, dot com. Check it out today. Dr. Shuey, I want to go back and try to recap just a little bit of what you were saying because I think what I heard you say when we were talking about mindset being attitude is that it really comprises three areas. The first one is that feeling of I'm okay, kind of I'm okay, you're okay, right? And then right. The second, you know, <laughs> Frank, and then Frank's the, book came out in the 70s. Perfect, exactly, kind of led the way. And then the second one is being present and being present time. And I'm hoping we can spend a little bit of time on this third one because what I hear you talking about is autogenic training. And I thought you said basically you're learning to gain control of what you feel in your physical body, and then that moves into being able to gain more control of your emotions and really learning how to consciously relax. Can you talk a little bit more about autogenic training and what it is? And I spend, a, you know, let's say a maximum of five minutes guiding people in that right now. Oh, gosh, I would just love that. Thank you. Okay. Well, everybody relax as well as you can wherever you are, sitting, uncross your arms and legs. Just be present. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And now every time as you breathe in, just say to yourself quietly, my arms and legs and as you breathe out, are heavy and warm. It's that pleasant heaviness that you feel just before you fall asleep. My arms and legs are heavy and warm. My arms and legs are heavy and warm. Imagine the sun beaming down upon you pleasantly, warming your arms and legs, and with every breath, my arms and legs are heavy and warm. And then as you breathe in, my heart beats. And as you breathe out, it's calm and regular. My heart beats. is calm and regular. And you may be able to feel your heart beat right in your chest, but most people can feel it particularly in their hands or fingers. My heart beats. Is calm and regular. You could create an image of something like a metronome or the pendulum of a clock. And with every breath, my arms and legs are heavy and warm. My arms and legs 
regular. My heartbeat is calm and regular. My heartbeat is calm and regular. Now as you breathe in, my breathing, as you breathe out, is free and easy. My breathing is free and easy. My breathing is free and easy. Create an image of something pleasantly free and easy, like a bird gliding through the air, not having even to beat its wings. My breathing is free and easy. My breathing is free and easy. And as you breathe in, my abdomen, as you breathe out, is warm. My abdomen is warm. My abdomen is warm. Again, create an image of the sun beaming down right on the center of your abdomen, warming it through and through. My abdomen is warm. My abdomen is warm. As you breathe in, my forehead, as you breathe out, is cool. My forehead is cool. My forehead is cool. Create an image of being outside pleasantly dressed, but with a pleasant, cool breeze blowing across your forehead. My forehead is cool. My forehead is cool. My forehead is cool. As you breathe in, my mind, as you breathe out, is quiet and still. My mind is quiet and still. My mind is quiet and still. Again, create an image of something very pleasant, quiet and still. Perhaps a scene in nature. My mind is quiet and still. My mind is quiet and still. Just now be aware of the feedback from your body. Check to see whether you have tension, discomfort, or just a feeling of being relaxed in your face and jaw, your neck and throat, your shoulders, arms and hands, your chest, your abdomen, your back and buttocks, your pelvis, your thighs, and calves and feet. And you can then talk to any one of the parts of your body or any organ, organ-specific phrases which you create, like, my is relaxed. Talk to it, like, and it will respond. It will give you the feedback, and it will change the way you ask it to. Now, I've done this with many hundreds of people. And even a brief period like that in people with hypertension, I would say conservatively, 80-plus percent of the time will lower the blood pressure 10 to 30 points. It just makes you feel good. It sure does. That was wonderful. I, and that's, you call that the basic Schultz, is that right? Yes, and the reason I do is because Dr. J. H. Schultz, Johann H. Schultz, a German psychiatrist, discovered that and began working on it in 1912, 100 years ago this year. 
And as I said, by 1969, there were 2,600 scientific references showing all kinds of improvements. It's just an amazing feeling. I mean, even for that, because the basic Schultz uh, normally 19 minutes, and, and like you said, even that just that short time we just did now, I can just feel myself just so relaxed. I almost could catch my thoughts thinking, how, how am I going to start speaking again? I'm so relaxed and I feel so good because uh, you can feel just all the stress melt away and everything. It's a wonderful technique. And this is what you call autogenic training. That's right. but that's that's what Schultz called it, and that's why I use his name. I and two of our doctoral students have done their doctoral dissertation. One of them was patients with fibromyalgia, which is the most difficult pain problem practically uh, I know. And he had a strikingly successful improvement in people with fibromyalgia within one month. Another of our students did hers working with caregivers of terminally ill patients. And the caregivers are suffering often more than the patients are. And they improve tremendously in their well-being and symptoms and things like that. So it is powerful. What a great application of that for, for caregivers, because that's really true. Caregivers of terminally ill patients, they really do get overlooked a lot of time in their own self-care. And what a great application of that technique. And so do you recommend then, do you do this every day or how often, yes. twice a day? Well, for people with a lot of problems, I recommend twice a day. For people who just want gradually to retrain the whole nervous system, once a day is adequate. And it takes to really retrain something that's, let's say, well out of balance, six to 12 weeks. But I've been doing this since 1972. Oh, wow. Now, once you've got to doing it well, you can get by with it for three minutes sometimes. I suppose you kind of flip a switch a little bit, don't you? I remember exactly. actually hearing that. Yeah, that's right. You, it's like you flip a switch and you get good. So what do you think, and I, I don't know really how to even phrase this question, but maybe you can give me some insight with, since you're a neurosurgeon, you've got all the, you know, answers on the brain. Why do you think it works? What do you think it is? Do you think it's that, we're, you know, we're retraining our bodies to react differently, or why do you think this works so well? Well, it, it, we're actually re- retraining the control center, the hypothalamus. The, oh. You know, the hypothalamus is a little part in the center of the brain and way down deep, and it is the switchboard for everything that's taking place. It, it's the control center of your physiology, your chemistry, and electricity of everything in the body. And so what you're really doing is, is just organizing that, retraining it, and it gets rid of unneeded stuff as you go. Um, Schultz believed that it created something he called an autogenic shift in the diencephalon, which is the part of the brain there, and, and, and the evidence is good that it does. I mean, it does reduce blood pressure. It reduces pulse. It helps produce favorable things like DHEA and probably some beta endorphins, the, the normal narcotics. So it seems to me then, correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds to me like kind of a perfect blend of mind and body, really. It's almost like they're communicating with each other by you walking through this exercise and our thoughts guiding our bodies in this way that really it's like they're communicating. Exactly. It it is exactly that. And gradually, the more you do it, the more aware you are of 
stress beginning to creep into the body. Because mm. stress is just an overload. That's all it is. It's more than your electrical chemical system can comfortably handle. And so what it does is remove that reaction, that fear reaction, put you back at peace. Right, right. Oh, it's just fantastic. What a wonderful tool. Really good. Now, I heard you mention DHEA just a second ago, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that and about supplements or things that we should be doing for our health in that way. Can you explain to everybody a little bit about... In the late 80s, I began to be interested in DHEA because it's actually the single most important hormone in your body. It is a reflection of what I would call your adrenal or stress reserves. In ordinary world, average person produces a peak production of DHEA by age 25. Now, if you're an athlete in your teens, you can you can peak earlier than that. But most people are not athletes, and so they produce the most they're ever going to produce by age 25. But after that, by age 30 they've already begun to lose its, their ability to cope with stress. So the DHEA may be down 5 or 10%. By age 80, DHEA levels are less than 10% of what they were at age 30. And every known disease is associated, and this is both physical and emotional, with a decrease in DHEA. But if you're a woman... If you happen to die after age 35, you've got at least a 39% chance of having microscopic evidence of breast cancer. But if you live to be 100, you've only got an 11% chance of developing breast cancer. If you're a man, by age 50, you've got a 50% chance of having microscopic evidence of prostate cancer. But if you live to be 100, you've only got a 13% chance of developing prostate cancer. Because essentially, you know, that's how good our stress reserves are. We we still manage. But if you take DHE orally, it loses its ability to dance with cortisol because normally DHEA responds to an increase in cortisol, which is part of the stress reaction. And so you may actually flare up that hidden dormant cancer. There are four techniques that I know unequivocally at this point will help you restore DHEA. The first one I discovered was natural progesterone in men and women. It will raise DHEA 30 to 100%, average 60%, no matter where you start. Then I discovered a circuit in the body I'll call the range of, ring of fire. And the ring of fire significantly raises DHEA. Again, an average of 60% on top of what you could do with progesterone. Then I discovered that a combination of Vitamin C and methylsulfonylmethane, two grams of C, one gram, gram of MSN, a couple other little things, but this will raise DHEA 60% average. And then finally, magnesium chloride applied to the skin, but not orally or intravenously, will raise DHEA. Another 60% average. So in general, if you do all four of these, you can raise your DHEA over a period of three months by about 250% of whatever you start with. I had a woman who came in having an acute heart attack. And so I put her on DHEA to get her through the heart attack 
But then I had to start stimul- doing these other things. And after two months, weaned her off the oral DHEA and had her continue doing these things. And in three months, her DHEA had gone up from 38 to 380. Wow. That's incredible. So you don't actually recommend taking it as a supplement at all then? No. Uh, now, okay. unless you're having one of those serious inflammatory illnesses for which they put you on prednisone or cortisone, then you should take it because otherwise you'll have many more complications. But in ordinary circumstances, you really should get your body to make its own. So are there any other, because it sounds to me then, in addition for supplement-wise, and obviously the Ring of Fire was a great suggestion too for raising DATA, but you're saying vitamin C and MSM should be taken? Yeah, I call it youth formula because I put it together in a capsule. Oh, cool. That's awesome. And then is there any others that you think should be taken every day? Well, the magnesium lotion, because 80% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. And magnesium deficiency leads to muscle pain, tightness, depression, and all kinds of illness, including hypertension. And so most people can benefit tremendously by what I call magnesium lotion. And I've got lotion forms. That's that's interesting. And much safer. Well, and the skin is it takes it all in, doesn't it? You know, it really exactly. absorbs it, the biggest organ and everything. No, that makes sense. And, and I don't think we use lotions often enough, so I, I love that answer. I want to take a minute, if you don't mind, Dr. Shuey, and talk a little bit about emotional trauma and kind of the role it plays in change. Do you think there are some misconceptions about what emotional trauma is, first of all? Do you think more people are suffering from emotional trauma than meets well, the eye? Yes, I actually believe that all people who have any significant emotional problem, and again, it's it's all a reaction to fear. There's only one big thing, and that's fear. And fear is fear of abandonment, loss of love, fear of being an invalid, fear of death, uh, fear of being, you know, impoverished, and then the big existence itself, I call the existential crisis, everything else. That means judgment. Why, God, did this happen to me? And all that. And fear leads to anger or guilt or anxiety or depression. And many people don't mind saying, I'm anxious, but they wouldn't say, I'm, I'm afraid. Well, actually, it's essentially anxiousness is the primary thing you feel when you have a fear. Now, you may react with anger, and that can be good, unless you carry it on for 50 years, etc. So all emotional things come about primarily because in childhood, we go back to that again, they felt either abused or abandoned. And it doesn't matter. Both of them can lead you down this path. So can I get a little bit of clarification on that? Because I I really like where you're going with this. And I hear you saying that they felt abused or abandoned and that it resulted in fear, you know, an emotional trauma, specifically fear. And what I'm wondering is when we use those words like abused or abandoned, it sounds so big. And I'm wondering if this can even be little things that because we're looking at it through a little person's eyes, we feel abused or abandoned, but they might not be intended oh, it that way I or, could, you know. I could give you a perfect example. My sister. Oh, please. My, my sister was two and a half when I was born. 
My mother had hyperthyroidism while she was pregnant with me. She was about 5'2", ordinarily weighed 105. She went down to 75 pounds. So I'm born healthy, fortunately, and she's weak and frail and preoccupied with trying to take care of the baby. On a couple of occasions, my mother brushed my sister aside to take care of the new baby. My sister felt abandoned. Now, she was never mistreated. She never left home till she was 30. She didn't get married till she was 30. And yet, she never forgave my mother. Even when she was in her mid-50s, she said to my mother, in my presence, when Norm was born, you abandoned me. And my mother responded, I didn't abandon you. You abandoned me. So it was that kind of odd, minimal thing that happened. And yet my sister took it as abandonment. And she was depressed all of her life. Oh, my. So do you think, then, that we actually store this in the body? When we have an emotional hit like that that we interpret, do you think we actually take that trauma and store it in the body somewhere and it kind of manifests around? Absolutely, absolutely. I I, I think particularly, you know, I did a a DVD several years ago called Medical Renaissance, The Secret Code, and one of the patients who was quite depressed, he's in his mid-40s, been depressed since he was seven when his parents were divorced and he felt it was his fault. And, you know, again, it wasn't his fault. And he and his father now had a wonderful relationship. But he never got over, until I worked with him for a while, his feeling of having been abandoned. Right. Right, because it's stored in the body. And I think a lot of times, a lot of these things that we store, it is just because, you know, we're young and we don't know and we it's misperceptions. Maybe even now, you know, I mean, maybe even sometimes when we're adults, we're still taking little emotional traumas and we, we don't release them. I remember hearing you tell a little bit about the connection between emotions and illness. And I wish I could remember the man's name now. Was it um, Hans Isaac, I think, the psychiatrist who did some study about the correlation between certain emotions and certain disease? Yeah, Hans Isaac, the great German psychiatrist, actually he did most of his clinical work in England, but he's from Germany. He and a colleague studied 13,000 people in in, uh, half of them in Yugoslavia and half in Heidelberg. And they did this basic personality uh, analysis of healthy people in their 20s to 50s and followed them for over 20 years. What they found is that 75% of people who died of cancer had a lifelong feeling of abandonment, hopeless depression. 15% lifelong anger, 9% both. 75% of people who died of heart disease had lifelong anger. 15% depression, 9% both. So 99% of all the people who died of the two major diseases, heart disease and cancer, had either lifelong anger and or depression. And, and the type 1, the, the lifelong depressed people, died 35 years earlier than people who felt okay. That's, those are amazing statistics. And so really, you've given us so much great advice on what we can do to feel better and release some of these emotions and all of that be present and everything. But it sounds to me like you're saying the best thing you can do, the reason you're doing these 
exercises and the reason you want to be feeling better, whether it's through good food or whether it's through autogenic training, is because at the core of it, you need to love yourself. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's the most important thing. I'm so glad you mentioned that because Henry Rocker was a wonderful, wonderful counselor who worked with us for a number of years. And he used to encourage people to look in the mirror and say, I love you. A lot of people mm-hmm. can't do that. And, you know, my favorite goes back to, to, uh, to Harris's book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. You really need to be able to look in the mirror and say, I love you, I'm okay, because God does not create junk. Mm. It's so powerful. You can just feel the great emotion when you say something like that. You know, I know we only have a couple of minutes, but I this is I've been waiting to ask you this <laughs> ever since I found out I was going to get to have you on the phone, because you have always been so far ahead of your time. You've always been on the cutting edge. You're always just way ahead of the rest of the world. And so I want to know straight from your mouth, Dr. Sheely, what do you think is next? What is on the horizon for us? Where are we headed? (laughs) I'm now developing essential oil mixtures for each of my five sacred rings. And I've already proven that the one I've produced for the Ring of Earth will raise calcitonin, the biggest pain reliever the body produces and essential for your skeleton to stay strong. I'm hoping to get back the results any day on Ring of Fire, which is DHEA racing. I'm going to do soon the one for water, which raises aldosterone. And we're in the process, almost halfway through an experiment, of reducing free radicals with the Ring of Crystal and applying its uh, specific oil. So if I can do with each of these, what is necessary that people can apply in two minutes, I mean in 30 seconds really, then I think that will be my greatest contribution. It's so exciting. Isn't that wonderful? I can hardly wait. You just, I can't wait to have you back on. You can share all about your great success with it because it, that is just really exciting stuff. And I've sure enjoyed this. I, I thank you so much for taking time with us. We've had such a nice visit, and I feel like the hour went way, way too fast. Uh, gosh, Dr. Shuey, thank you so much. This has just been so wonderful to have this time with you. Everyone, it's great having you here, and we will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, Dr. Shuey. Goodbye. Have a great day. We have a vast non-conscious capacity. So it's very important to begin to have a conscious awareness. And really, that's the state where learning happens. We know that no human decision gets made without an emotion. There's nothing quite like a Dana rant. Say it over and over and over again because it makes me so happy to have something that rhymes. Stop cancel clear, all my love is here. Stop cancel clear, all my power is here. Like, oh my god, I was always told never to be selfish. I know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I just love it. It's just the little things, right? See you next time on the Mind Aware Show.